Section thirty six of Roxana by Daniel Defoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. My life did not mend after my son was gone. All I could do would not persuade my lord to have any free conversation with me. And at this juncture, it was that the foolish jade Amy, who was now advanced in years, was catched in a conversation with one of my lord's men, which was not to her credit, for, it coming to his ears, she was turned out of the house by my lord's orders, and was never suffered to come into it again during his lifetime. And I did not dare to speak a word in her favour, for fear he should retort upon me like mistress, like maid. I could hear nothing of Amy for the first three months after she had left me, till one day, as I was looking out of a window, I saw her pass by, but I did not dare ask her to come in, for fear my lord should hear of her being there, which would have been adding fuel to the fire. However, she, looking up at the house, saw me, I made a motion to her to stay a little out about the door, and in the meantime I wrote a note and dropped it out of the window in which I told her how I had lived in her absence, and desired her to write me a letter, and carry it the next day to my sempstress's house, who would take care to deliver it to me herself. I told Isabel that she should let me know when the milliner came again, for I had some complaints to her about getting up my best suit of Brussels lace night-clothes. On the Saturday following, just after I had dined, Isabel came into my apartment. My lady, says she, the milliner is in the parlour. Will you be pleased to have her sent upstairs, or will your ladyship be pleased to go down to her? Why, send her up, Isabel, said I. She is as able to come to me as I am to go to her. I will see her there. When the milliner came into my chamber, I sent Isabel to my dressing-room to fetch a small parcel of fine linen which lay there, and in the interim she gave me Amy's letter, which I put into my pocket, and having pretended to be angry about my linen, I gave her the small bundle Isabel brought, and bid her be sure to do them better for the future. She promised me she would, and went about her business, and when she was gone I opened Amy's letter, and having read it found it was to the following purpose, that she had opened a coffee-house furnished the upper part of it to let out in lodgings, that she kept two maids and a man, but that the trade of it did not answer as she had reason to expect. She was willing to leave it off, and retire into the country to settle for the rest of her life, but was continually harassed by such disturbance in her conscience as made her unfit to resolve upon anything, and wished there was a possibility for her to see me, that she might open her mind the same freedom as formerly, and have my advice upon some particular affairs and such like discourse. It was a pretty while before I heard from Amy again, and when I did the letter was in much the same strain as the former, excepting that things were coming more to a crisis, for she had told me in it that her money was so out, that is, lent as ready money to traders and trusted for liqueurs on her house, that if she did not go away this quarter she should be obliged to run away the next. 
I very much lamented her unfortunate case, but that could be no assistance to her, as I had it not now in my power to see her when I would, or give her what I pleased, as it had always used to be. So all I could do was to wish her well, and leave her to take care of herself. About this time it was that I perceived my lord began to look very pale and meagre, and I had a notion he was going into a consumption. I did not dare tell him so, for fear he should say I was daily looking for his death, and was now overjoyed that I saw a shadow of it. Nevertheless, he soon after began to find himself in a very bad state of health, for he said to me one morning that my care would not last long, for he believed he was seized by a distemper it was impossible for him to get over. My lord, said I, you do not do me justice in imagining anything concerning me that does not tend to your own happiness, for if your body is out of order, my mind suffers for it. Indeed, had he died then, without making a will, it might have been well for me, but it was not so near death as that and what was worse, the distemper which proved a consumption, which was occasioned chiefly by much study, watchings, melancholy thoughts, willful and obstinate neglect of taking care of his body, and such like things, held him nine weeks, and three days after this, before it carried him off. He now took country lodgings, most delightfully situated both for air and prospect, and had a maid and man to attend him. I begged on my knees to go with him, but could not get that favour granted, for if I could, it might have been the means of restoring me to his favour. But our breach was too wise to be thoroughly reconciled, though I used all the endearing ways I ever had occasion for to creep into his favour. Before he went out of town, he locked and sealed up every room in the house, excepting my bedchamber, dressing-room, one parlour, and all the offices and rooms belonging to the servants, and as he had now all my substance in his power, I was in a very poor state for the countess, and began to wish, with great sincerity, that I had never seen him, after I had lived so happy a life as I did at the Quakers, for notwithstanding our estates joined together, when we were first married, amounted to £3,376 per annum, and near eighteen thousand pounds ready money, besides jewels, plate, goods, etc., of a considerable value. Yet we had lived in a very high manner since our taking the title of Earl and Countess upon us, setting up a great house, and had a number of servants, our equipage such as coach, chariot, horses, and their attendants, a handsome fortune my lord had given to my daughter, and a very noble one to my son, whom he loved very well, not for being my son, but for the courteous behaviour of him in never aspiring to anything above a valet, after he knew who he was, till my lord made him his secretary or clerk. Besides all these expenses, my lord, having flung himself into his trade to the Indies, both east and west, had sustained many great and uncommon losses, occasioned by his merchandise being mostly shipped in English bottoms, and that nation having declared war against the crown of Spain, he was one of the first and greatest sufferers by that power, so that on the whole our estate, which was as above, dwindled to about one thousand pounds per annum, and our home stock, about seventeen thousand pounds, was entirely gone. 
This, I believe, was another great mortification to his lordship, and one of the main things that did help to hasten his end, for he was observed both by me and all his servants to be more cast down at hearing of his losses that were almost daily sent to him than he was at what had happened between him and me. Nothing could give me more uneasiness than the damage I state sustained by this traffic. He looked upon it as a mere misfortune that no person could avoid, but I, besides that, thought it was a judgment upon me, to punish me in the loss of all my ill-got gain. But when I found that his own fortune began to dwindle as well as mine, I was almost ready to think it was possible his lordship might have been wicked as a liver as I had, and as the same vengeance as he had been poured upon me for my repeated crimes might also be a punishment for him. As his lordship was in a bad state of health and had removed to a country lodging, his study and counting-house as well as his other rooms were locked and sealed up. All business was laid aside excepting such letters as came to him were carried to his lordship to be opened, read, and answered. I also went to see him, morning and evening, but he would not suffer me to stay with him a single night. I might have had another room in the same house, but was not willing that the people who kept it should know that there was a misunderstanding between them. So I contented myself to be a constant visitor, but could not persuade him to forgive me the denying of my daughter and acting the part of Roxana, because I had kept those two things an inviolable secret from him, and everybody else but Amy, and it was carelessness in her conduct at last that was the foundation of all my future misery. As my lord's weakness increased, so his ill-temper, rather than diminish, increased also. I could do nothing to please him, and began to think that he was only pettish, because he found it was his turn to go out of the world first. A gentleman that lived near him, as well as his chaplain, persuaded him to have a physician, to know in what state his health was, and by all I could learn the doctor told him to settle his worldly affairs as soon as he conveniently could. For, says he, although your death is not certain, still your life is very precarious. The first thing he did after this was to send for the son he had by me from the university. He came the week afterwards, and the tutor with him, to take care of his pupil. The next day, after my lord came home, and sending for six eminent men that lived at the Hague, he made his will, and signed it in the presence of them all, and they with the chaplain were appointed the executors of it, and guardians of my son. As I was in a great concern, at his making his will unknown to me, and before we were friends. I thought of it in too serious a manner not to speak about it. I did not know where to apply first, but after mature consideration sent for the chaplain, and he coming to me, I desired he would give me the best intelligence he could about it. My lady, said he, you cannot be so unacquainted with the duty of my function, and the trust my lord has reposed in me, that you must know I shall go beyond I trust in relating anything of that nature to you. All that I can say on that head is that I would have you make friends with my lord as soon as you possibly can, and get him to make another will, or else take the best care of yourself as lies in your power, 
for I assure you, if his lordship dies, you are but poorly provided for. These last words of the chaplain's most terribly alarmed me. I knew not what to do, and at last, as if I was to be guided by nothing but the fury, I went to his chamber, and after inquiring how he did, and hearing that he was far from well, I told him I had heard he had made his will. Yes, said he, I have. And what then? Why, my lord, replied I, I thought it would not have been derogatory to both our honours for you to have mentioned it to me before you did it, and have let me known in what manner you intended to settle your estate. This would have been but acting like a man to his wife, even if you had married me without a fortune, but as you received so handsomely with me, you ought to have considered it as my substance, as well as your own, that you were going to dispose of. My lord looked somewhat staggered at what I had said, and pausing a little while, answered that he thought, and almost looked upon it as a granted opinion, that after a man married a woman, all that she was in possession of, was his, excepting he had made a prior writing or settlement to her of any part or all she was then possessed of. Besides, my lady, added he, I have married both your children, and given them very noble fortunes, especially your son. I have also had great losses in trade, both by sea and land, since you delivered your fortune to me, and even at this time, notwithstanding the appearance we make in the world, I am not worth a third of what I was when we came to settle in Holland, and then here is our own son shall be provided for in a handsome manner by me, for I am thoroughly convinced there will be but little care taken of him if I leave anything in your power for that purpose. Witness Thomas and Susanna. My lord, said I, I am not come into your chamber to know what care you have taken of our child. I do not doubt but you have acted like a father by it what i would be informed in is what i am to depend upon in case of your decease which i however hope may be a great many years off yet you need not concern yourself about that said he your son will take care that you shall not want but yet i will tell you too said he that it may prevent your wishing for my death i have in my will left all i am possessed of in the world to my son excepting one thousand five hundred pounds out of that there is five hundred pounds for you five hundred pounds among my executors and the other five hundred pounds is to bury me pay my funeral expenses and what is over plus i have ordered to be equally divided among my servants when i had heard him pronounce these words i stared like one that was frightened out of his senses Five hundred pounds for me, says I. Pray, what do you mean? What, am I that brought you so handsome a fortune to be under the curb of my son, and ask him for every penny I want? No, sir, said I, I will not accept it. I expect to be left in full possession of one half of your fortune, that I may live the remainder of my life like your wife. Madame, replied my lord you may expect what you please if you can make it appear since i found you out to be a jilt that i have looked upon you as my wife everything shall be altered and settled just as you desire which might then be called your will but as the case now stands the will is mine and so it shall remain 
thought I should have sunk when I heard him make this solemn and premeditated declaration. I raved like a mad woman, and at the end of my discourse told him that I did not value what could happen to me, even if I was forced to beg my bread, for I would stand the test of my own character, and as I could get nothing by being an honest woman, so i should not scruple to declare that the son you have left what you have too is a bastard you had by me several years before we were married oh says he madame do you think you can frighten me no not in the least for if you ever mention anything of it the title as well as all the estate will go to another branch of my family and you will then be left to starve in good earnest without having the least glimpse of hope to better your fortune for added he it is not very probable that you will be courted for a wife by any man of substance at these years so if you have a mind to make yourself easy in your present circumstances you must rest contented with what i have left you and not prove yourself a whore to ruin your children in whose power it will be to provide for you in a handsome manner provided you behave yourself with that respect to him and me as you ought to do for any words arise about what i have done i shall make a fresh will and as the laws of this nation will give me liberty cut you off with a shilling my own unhappiness and his strong and lasting resentment had kept me at high words and flowing in tears for some time and as i was unwilling anybody should see me in that unhappy condition i stayed coolly talking to him till our son who had been to several gentlemen's houses about my lord's business came home to tell his father the success he had met with abroad he brought in with him banknotes to the amount of twelve thousand pounds which he had received of some merchants he held a correspondence with at which my lord was well pleased for he was pretty near out of money at this juncture after our son had delivered the accounts and bills had withdrawn i asked my lord in a calm tone to give me the satisfaction of knowing in what manner the losses he had complained to have suffered consisted you must consider my lord said i that according to what you have been pleased to inform me of we are upwards of two thousand pounds per annum besides about seventeen thousand pounds ready money poorer than we were when we first came to settle in holland you talk replied my lord in a very odd manner do not you know that I had children of my own by a former wife, and of these I have taken so much care as to provide with very handsome fortunes which are settled irrevocably upon them? I have, providence be thanked, given each of them five thousand pounds, and that is laid in East India stock, sufficient to keep them genteelly, above the frowns of fortune, and free from the fear of want. This, joined to the money I mentioned to you before, as losses at sea, deaths and bankruptcies, your children's fortunes, which are larger than my own children's, the buying the estate we live on, and several other things which my receipts and notes will account for, as you may see after my decease. I have to oblige you on this head, almost descended to particulars, which I never thought to have done, but as I have, rest yourself contented, and be well assured that I have not willfully thrown your substance away. I could not tell what he meant by saying he had not wilfully thrown any of my substance away. These words puzzled me, for I found by his discourse I was to have but five hundred pounds of all that I had bought him at his decease, which I looked upon to be near at hand. I had but one thing that was any satisfaction to me, which was this, 
I was assured by him that he had not bestowed above the fifteen thousand pounds he mentioned to me on his children, by his former wife, and on an exact calculation he made it appear that he had bestowed on my son Thomas alone near thirteen thousand pounds in buying the plantation, shares in vessels, and merchandise, besides several valuable presents sent to his wife, both by him and me. And as for my daughter Susanna, she was very well married to a factor, with a fortune of two thousand pounds which was a great sum of money for a woman to have who was immediately to go to the East Indies, besides some handsome presents given to her both by him and me. In fact, her fortune was in proportion as large as her brother's, for there is but very few women in England or Holland with two thousand pounds fortune that would venture to the coast of Malabar, even to have married an Indian king, much more to have gone over with a person that no one could tell what reception he might meet with, or might be recalled at the pleasure of the company, upon the least distaste taken by the merchants against him. Neither would I, though her own mother hinder her voyage, for she had been the author of all the misfortunes that had happened to me, and if my speaking a word would have saved her from the greatest torment, I believe I should have been quite silent. And I had but one reason to allege for the girl's going so hazardous a voyage she knew that the match was proposed by my lord, and if he had not thought it would have been advantageous for her, he would never have given two thousand pounds to her husband as a fortune, and again as my lord was the only friend she had in our family, she was cunning enough to know that the bare disobliging of him would have been her ruin for ever after, to which I may add that it is possible, as she had made so much mischief about me, she was glad to get what she could, and go out of the way, for fear my lord and I should be friends, which if that had happened, she would have been told never to come to our house any more. As my lord's death began to be daily the discourse of the family, I thought that he might be more reconciled if I entered into the arguments again, pro and con, which we had together before. I did so. But all I could say was no to satisfaction till I importuned him on my knees with a flood of tears. Madame, said he, what would you have me do? Do, my lord, said I, only be so tender to my years and circumstances as to alter your will, or at least add a codicil to it. I desire nothing more, for I declare I'd rather be a beggar than live under my child's jurisdiction. To this he agreed with some reluctance, and he added a codicil to his will. This pleased me greatly, and gave me comfort, for I dreaded nothing so much after all my high living as being under any person, relation or stranger, whether they exercised any power over me or not. I saw the lawyer come out of the chamber first, but was above asking him any questions. The next were the executors and chaplain. I asked the last how they came to have words. He did not answer me directly, but begged to know whose pleasure it was to have the codicil annexed. It was mine, sir, replied I, and it made me very easy before I could have the favour granted. He only replied by saying, Ah, poor lady, the favour, as you are pleased to term it, is not calculated for any benefit to you. Think the worst you can of it. I was terribly uneasy at what the chaplain had said, but I imagined to myself that I could not be worse off than I thought I should be before the codicil was annexed 
and as he withdrew without saying any more, I was fain to rest satisfied with what I had heard, and that amounted to nothing. The next day after this, the physicians that attended my lord told him it was time for him to settle his worldly affairs, and prepare himself for a hereafter. I now found all was over, and I had no other hopes for his life than the physician's declaration of his being near his death. For it often happens that the gentlemen of the faculty give out that a man is near his death to make the cure appear to be the effect of their great skill in distempers and medicine. As others, when they cannot find out the real disease, give out that a man's end is near rather than discover their want of judgment. And this I thought might be the case without doctors of physic. Our son was still kept from the university and lodged at the house of one of his future guardians when he heard that his father was so near his end, he was very little out of his presence, for he dearly loved him. My lord sent the day before his death to lock and seal up all the doors in his dwelling-house at the Hague, and the steward had orders in case of my lord's decease not to let anybody come in, not even his lady, who had for some time lodged in the same house with her lord, without an order from the executors. The keys of the doors were carried to him, and as he saw his death approach, he prepared for it, and in fact resigned up the keys of everything to the executors, and having bid them all a farewell, they were dismissed. The physicians waited, but as the verge of life approached, and it was out of their power to do him any service, he gave them a bill of a hundred pounds for the care they had taken of him, and dismissed them. I now went into the chamber and kneeling by his bedside, kissed him with great earnestness, and begged of him, if ever I had disobliged him in any respect, to forgive me. He sighed, and said he most freely forgave me everything that I had reason to think I had offended him in. But, he added, if you had been so open in your conversation to me before our marriage as to discover your family and way of life, I know not but that I should have married you as I did. I might now have been in a good state of health, and you many years have lived with all the honours due to the Countess de Winselsheim. These words drew tears from my eyes, and they being the last of any consequence, he said, they had the greater impression upon me. He faintly bid me a long farewell, and said, as he had but a few moments to live, he hoped I would retire, and leaving with our son and the chaplain withdrew into my own chamber, almost drowned in tears, and my son soon followed me out, leaving the chaplain with his father, offering up his prayers to heaven for the receiving of his soul into the blessed mountains of eternal bliss. A few minutes after our son went into the chamber with me again and received his father's last blessing, the chaplain now saw him departing was read, reading the prayer ordered by the church for that occasion. While he was doing it, my lord laid his head gently on the pillow, and turning on his left side, departed this life with all the calmness of a composed mind, without so much as a groan, in the fifty-seventh year of his age. As soon as he was dead, an undertaker was sent for, by order of the executors, who met together immediately to open his will and take care of all my son's effects. I was present when it was opened, and read, but how terribly I was frightened at hearing the codicil repeated, any person may imagine by the substance of it, 
which was to this effect, that if I had given me any more after his decease than the five hundred pounds he had left me, the five hundred pounds left to his executors, and the one thousand pound of my son's estate, which was now a year's interest, was to be given to such poor families at the Hague as were judged to be in the greatest want of it, not to be divided into equal sums, but every family to have according to their merit and necessity. But this was not all. My son was tied down much harder, for if it was known that he gave me any relief, let my condition be ever so bad, either by himself, by his order, or in any manner of way, device, or contrivance that he could think of, one half of his estate, which was particularly mentioned, was to devolve to the executors for ever. And if they granted me ever so small a favour, that sum was to be equally divided among the several parishes where they lived for the benefit of the poor. Any person would have been surprised to have seen how we all sat staring at each other, for though it was signed by all the executors, yet they did not know the substance of it till it was publicly read, excepting the chaplain, and he, as I mentioned before, had told me the codicil had better never been added. I was now in a fine dilemma. I had the title of a countess, with five hundred pounds and nothing else to subsist on but a very good wardrobe of clothes, which were not looked upon by my son and the executors to be my late lord's property which were worth, indeed, more than treble the sum I had left me. They were immediately removed from the lodgings, and left them to bury the body when they thought proper, and retired to a lodging at a private gentleman's house about a mile from the Hague. I was now resolved to find out Amy, being, as it were, at liberty, and accordingly went to the house where she had lived, and, finding that empty, inquired for her among the neighbours, who gave various accounts of what had become of her. But one of them had a direction left at his house where she might be found. I went to the place and found the house shut up, and all the windows broken, the sign taken down, and the rails and benches pulled from before the door. I was quite ashamed to ask for her there, for it was a very scandalous neighbourhood, and I concluded that Amy had been brought to low circumstances, and had kept a house of ill fame was either run away herself, or was forced to it by the officers of justice. However, as nobody knew me here, I went into a shop to buy some trifles, and asked who had lived in the opposite house, meaning Amy's. Really, madame, says the woman, I do not well know, but it was a woman who kept girls for gentlemen, and she went on in that wickedness for some time, till the gentleman was robbed there of his watch, and a diamond ring, in which the women were all taken up and committed to the house of correction but the young ones are now at liberty and keep about the town pray said i what may have become of the old beast that could be the ruin of those young creatures why i do not well know says she but i have heard that as all her goods were seized upon she was sent to the poorhouse but it soon after appearing that she had the french disease to a violent degree was removed to a hospital to be taken care of but I believe she will never live to come out, and if she should be so fortunate, the gentleman that was robbed, finding that she was the guilty person, intends to prosecute her to the utmost rigour of the law. I was sadly surprised to hear this character of Amy, for I thought whatever house she might keep that the hady of her blood had been over, but I found that she had not been willing to be taken for an old woman, though near sixty years of age, 
and my not seeing or hearing from her for some time past was a confirmation of what had been told me. I went home sadly dejected, considering how I might hear of her. I had known her for a faithful servant to me in all my bad and good fortune, and was sorry that at the last such a miserable end should overtake her, though she, as well as I, deserved it several years before. A few days after I went pretty near the place I had heard she was, and hired a poor woman to go and inquire how Amy did, and whether she was likely to do well. The woman returned and told me that the matron or mistress of the person I inquired after died in a salivation two days before, and was buried the last night in the cemetery belonging to the hospital. I was very sorry to hear of Amy's unhappy and miserable death, for when she came first into my service she was really a sober girl, very witty and brisk, but never impudent, and her notions in general were good, till my forcing her, as it were, to have an intrigue with the jeweller. She had also lived with me between thirty and forty years, in the several stages of life as I had passed through as I had done nothing but what she was privy to, so she was the best person in the universal world to consult with and take advice from, as my circumstances now were. I returned to my lodgings, much chagrined, and very disconsolate, for as I had for several years lived at the pinnacle of splendour and satisfaction, it was a prodigious heartbreak to be now to fall from upwards of three thousand per annum to a poor five hundred pounds principal. A few days after this I went to see my son, the Earl of Winselsheim. He received me in very courteous, though far from a dutiful, manner. We walked together near an hour upon general things, but had no particular discourse about my late lord's effects as I wanted to have. Among other things he told me that his guardians had advised him to go to the university for four years longer, when he would come of age, and his estate would be somewhat repaired, to which he said he had agreed and for that purpose all the household goods and equipages were to be disposed of the next week, and the servants dismissed. I immediately asked if it would be looked upon as an encroachment upon his father's will if I took Isabel, who had been my waiting-maid ever since I came from England, to live with me. No, my lady, very readily replied he, as she will be dismissed from me. She is certainly at liberty and full freedom to do for herself as soon and in the best manner she possibly can. After this I stayed about a quarter of an hour with him, and then I sent for Isabel to know if she would come and live with me on her own dismission from her lord's. The girl readily consented, for I had always been a good mistress to her, and then I went to my own lodgings on my son's coach, which he had ordered to be got ready to carry me home. Isabel came, according to appointment, about ten days after, and told me the house was quite cleared both of men and movables, but said her lord, meaning my son, was not gone to the university as yet, but was at one of his guardian's houses, where he would stay about a month, and that he intended to make a visit before his departure, which he did, attended by my late chaplain. And I, being in handsome lodgings, received them with all the complacence and love as was possible, telling them the time and circumstances, having greatly varied with me. Whatever they saw amiss, I hoped they would be so good as to look over it at that time, by considering the unhappy situation of my affairs. After the visit was over, and I had myself and Isabel to provide for handsome lodgings to keep, which were as expensive as they were fine, and nothing but my principal money to live on 
mean what I happened to have in my pocket at my lord's death, for I had not been paid my five hundred pounds as yet, I could not manage for the genteel maintenance as I had done some years before. I thought of divers things to lay my small sons out to advantage, but could fix on nothing, for it always happens that when people have but a trifle, they are very dubious in the disposal of it. Having been long resolving in my mind, I at last fixed on merchandise as the most genteel and profitable of anything else. Accordingly, I went to a merchant who was intimate with my late lord, and letting him know how my circumstances were, he heartily condoled with me, and told me he could help me to a share in two ships. One was going a trading voyage to the coast of Africa, and the other a privateering. I was now in a dilemma, and was willing to have a share in the trader was dubious of being concerned in the privateer, for I had heard strange stories told of the gentleman concerned in that way of business. Nay, I had been told, but with what certainty I cannot aver, that there was a set of men who took upon them to issue ships, and as they always knew to what port they are bound, notice was sent to their correspondent abroad to order out their privateers on the coast the other sailed, and they knowing the loading, and the numbers of hands and guns were on board, soon made prizes of the vessels and the profits were equally divided, after paying what was paid for their insurance among them all. However, I at last resolved by the merchant's advice to have a share by the, in the trader, and the next day he over-persuaded me to have a share in the privateer also, that I may not lay out my money before I have it, it may not be amiss to observe that I went to the executors and received my five hundred pounds at an hour's notice and then went to the merchants to know what the shares would come to, and being told £1,500, I was resolved to raise the money. So I went home, and with my maid Isabel, in two days' time, disposed of as many of my clothes as fetched me near £1,100, which joined to the above sum, I carried to the merchants, where the writings were drawn, signed, sealed, and delivered to me in the presence of two witnesses, who went with me for that purpose. The ships were near ready for sailing. The trader was so well manned and armed, as well as the privateer, that the partners would not consent to insure them, and out they both sailed, though from different ports, and I depended on getting a good estate between them. When I was about this last ship, a letter came from the Count, my son, full of tender expressions of his duty to me, in which I was informed that he was going again to the university at Paris, where he should remain four years. After that he intended to make the tour of Europe, and then come and settle at The Hague. I returned him thanks in a letter for his compliment, wished him all happiness and a safe return to Holland, and desired that he would write to me from time to time, that I might hear of his welfare, which was all I could now expect of him. But this was the last time I heard from him, or he from me. In about a month's time the news came that the privateer, which sailed under British colours, and was divided into eight shares, had taken a ship, and was bringing it into the Texel, but that it accidentally foundered, and being chained to the privateer, had in sinking like to have lost that too. Two or three of the hands got on shore, and came to the Hague, but how terribly I was alarmed any one may judge, when I heard the ship the privateer had was the Newfoundland merchantman, as I had bought two shares in out of four. About two months after news was current 
about the Hague of a privateer or merchantman, one of them of the town, though not known which, having an engagement in the Mediterranean in which action both the privateer and trader was lost. Soon after their names were publicly known, and in the end my partners heard that they were our ships, and unhappily sailing under false colours, a thing often practised in the time of war, and never having seen each other, had at meeting a very smart engagement, each fighting for life and honour, till two unfortunate shots, one of them, the privateer, was sunk by a shot between wind and water, and the trader unhappily blown up by a ball falling in the powder room. There were only two hands of the trader, and three of the privateer, that escaped, and they all fortunately met at one of the partners' houses, where they confirmed the truth of this melancholy story, and to me a fatal loss. What was to be done now? I had no money, and but few clothes left. There was no hope of subsistence for my son or his guardians. They were tied down to be spectators of my misfortunes, without affording me any redress, even if they would. Isabel, though I was now reduced to the last penny, would live with me still, and as I observed before, and may now repeat, I was in a pretty situation to begin the world, upwards of sixty years of age, friendless, scanty of clothes, and but very little money. I proposed to Isabel to remove from lodgings and retire to Amsterdam, where I was not known, and might turn myself into some little way of business, and work for that bread now which had been too often squandered away upon very trifles and upon consideration I found myself in a worse condition than I thought, for I had nothing to recommend me to heaven, either in works or thoughts, had even banished from my mind all the cardinal and moral virtues, and had much more reason to hide myself from the sight of God, if possible, than I had to leave the Hague, that I might be known of my fellow creatures. And farther to hasten our removing to Amsterdam, I recollected I was involved in debt for money, purchase a share in the Newfoundland trader, which was lost, and my creditors daily threatened me with an arrest to make me pay them. I soon discharged my lodgings and went with Isabel to Amsterdam, where I thought as I was advanced in years to give up all I could raise in the world, and on the sale of everything I had to go into one of the proveniers' houses where I should be settled for life, but as I could not produce enough money for it, I turned it into a coffee-house near the Stadthaus. I might have done well, but as soon as I was settled, one of my Hague creditors arrested me for a debt of seventy-five pounds, and I, not having a friend in the world of whom to raise the money, was, in a shameful condition, carried to the common jail. My poor Isabel followed me with showers of tears, and left me inconsolable for my great misfortunes. Here, without some very unforeseen accident, I shall never go out of it until I am carried to my grave, for which my much-offended God prepare me as soon as possible. The continuation of the life of Roxana by Isabel Johnson had been a waiting-maid, from the time she was thrown into jail to the time of her death. After my lady, as it was my duty to call her, was thrown into jail for a debt she was unable to pay, she gave her mind wholly up to devotion. Whether it was from a thorough sense of a wretched state, or any other reason, I could never learn. But this I may say, she was a sincere penitent, and in every action had all the behaviour of a Christian. By degrees all the things she had in the world were sold, and she began to find an inward decay upon her spirit. 
In this interval she repeated all the passages of her ill-spent life to me, and thoroughly repented of every bad action, especially the little value she had for her children, which were honestly born and bred. And having, as she believed, made her peace with God, she died with mere grief on the 2nd of July, 1742, in the 65th year of her age, and was decently buried by me in the churchyard belonging to the Lutherans, in the city of Amsterdam. End of section 36 End of Roxana by Daniel Defoe